You know, machine learning is really a combination of both an algorithm and data. So if your data is no good, no matter how good your algorithm, your model is not going to work well. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Enrico Bertini and I am a professor at NYU in New York City, where I do work in data visualization. And my name is Moritz Stefano and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. Yeah, and together we talk about data visualization, analysis, and generally the role data plays in our lives. And usually we also do that with a guest we invite on the show. Yes, and today we have another great guest. I'm really happy to have another person able to talk about machine learning and AI and to, yeah, teach us a little bit of what is going on there. Uh, we have Salima Amershi from Microsoft Research. Hi, Salima. Hi. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We are we are really excited to have um, someone like you that can explain a little bit of machine learning and also its uh, connections with visualization and, and humans. Yeah. So can you can you briefly introduce yourself? Give us a little bit of a short bio. Uh, what's your background and what kind of work you are doing at Microsoft? Yeah, sure. So. Uh, I'm a researcher at Microsoft Research, and I work on technologies to help people build and use machine learning systems. So uh, really, my research lies at this intersection of human-computer interaction and machine learning. And I would say that I have sort of two main lines of work. One where I focus on creating tools for like practitioners and data scientists. And so those are the people who are building or training these machine learning systems. And then the other is on uh, interfaces and interaction techniques for the average person who might be interacting with machine learning in their day-to-day -day lives. So through things like recommender systems or intelligent assistants. Uh, and I've been at MSR for a little bit over five years now. And before that, I was uh, finishing my PhD at the University of Washington, where I also focus on this uh, space of inter interfaces for machine learning. So I've been a big fan of your work for, for many years, kind of like reading your papers and and yeah, checking what kind of work you were working on. And uh, I really like, so what I really like about the work that you do is that you're focusing on the interaction side of machine learning, right? Mm -hmm. So how do people... How are people supposed to, to interact with machine learning? And then you build systems or techniques and models to, to basically see what people do when they are actually allowed to, to interact with the systems, right? right. So um, I think this used to be called interactive machine learning. <laughs> um, I don't know if you still want to call it this way, but I think the general <laughs> principle stands there. So what, what, what is interactive machine learning? Yeah. So. People, you know, have used interactive machine learning to mean a variety of different things. Uh, so some people I found use it synonymously with human in the loop machine yeah, learning, yeah. where there's mm -hmm. sort of this idea of a collaboration or a back and forth between humans and machines. Uh, other people use it to mean uh, where there's a sort of back and forth and both the machine and the user are driving the learning. So, so for example, active learning is where the machine sort of decides what the human will do next, as opposed to just the user driving each iteration. 
Uh, in, in some of my own early work, we uh, defined it, I believe, as uh, rapid uh, incremental learning cycles where there's this like tight coupling between the user and the system and the two influence one, uh, one another. But uh, I, you know, have sort of over the years after working in the space and working on uh, tools for practitioners who do sort of more of the traditional machine learning, where there's like sort of batch cycles, uh, I've sort of decided that I don't really like the term interactive machine learning anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've sort of just come to realize that most machine learning is interactive to some degree. Hmm. So, you know, in even in uh, traditional batch learning, most machine learning involves a human or even several humans to do things like collect the data or create features or set parameters. And that's even true for things like unsupervised machine learning, where, you know, the goal is often to remove the human entirely. But but even then, the a user has to be involved in certain things like setting parameters. So, for example, in clustering, someone has to specify the distance function or the number mm, of clusters. Yeah. Even in things like reinforcement learning, you know, someone has to specify the reward function. And so there's really almost always a human involved to, still to this day. And then I would also say that most machine learning still also has a loop in the sense that uh, no one ever gets it right the first time. Sure. Like even machine learning experts <laughs> often have to iterate many times, right, mm. before before it's working the way they want it to. And those loops or those iterations are still driven by a person examining how a model is behaving and trying to debug errors. So in that sense, I would say that like all machine learning has a sort of user and the machine sort of influencing one another. And, and in all cases, it's iterative. And so I almost sort of feel like having this distinction is doing the field a little bit of a disservice because uh, in some cases, people believe that only interactive machine learning requires consideration of the, the human or the interfaces to the learning system. But I'd really say that all machine learning requires this. And there's like a great need for better tools and better interfaces for traditional machine learning as well as mm, what we yeah. call interactive yeah. machine learning. That's really a great observation because so much of the practical like skill of using all these algorithms or also doing like interesting generative design also is mm -hmm. really the art of tweaking and understanding. Right like you know how to tune your parameters so exactly. so that it works well right yeah and in machine learning it's it's really the whole like the words are really confusing there's always <laughs> this also this this supervised and unsupervised you know <laughs> yeah. distinction which also doesn't really make that yeah. much sense the more you think about it right. and which also suggests like in some cases the machines do their thing and in other cases they're like i don't know on a leash or what i don't know <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah 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 But it's a good observation, or I think the the right approach, as you say, is like to say like, yeah, it's like humans and machines and like everybody brings in like a part of the process and there's always some some back and forth there and some loop. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, the the machine learning research community is trying to move towards not having to have a user involved as much because that's sort of a bottleneck, but Still, right now, humans are involved in almost, you know, in all aspects of, of these things, or, or even many humans. And so, I think there's still a lot more we can do to help the people who are who are using or building these things. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, there is so much to say about what all the many different stages at which a human can play mm -hmm. a role, right? And of course, yeah. I think you are right now mostly talking about the act of building the model, right? But then, of course, once the model has been built, there are lots of applications out there where humans will need to interact with the system that is based on this model, right? And that's a whole other yeah. Right. Can of worms. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's, so there's people who are building the model and like, sometimes we think of that as only this like training step where you press train <laughs> and this yeah. thing like learns, yeah. but like to get to that point, there was a bunch of steps that had to happen beforehand. So in collecting yeah. the data and processing, and you know, a lot of studies have shown that most of the time practitioners spend in doing machine learning is on all that stuff beforehand and all the debugging after. Yeah. And then, as you said, those things are used to drive user facing, you know, applications. And so ultimately people are the ones using these things. So we want better tools for them too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think there is this yeah. myth that machine learning or even computer science in general is about making everything automated, but in, mm. in one way or another, humans are always somewhere involved uh, in some elements of the pipeline. Right. right. So I, I, I really like the way you're framing this, that in a way I was thinking something similar about visualization, right? When you say interactive data visualization mm -hmm. or interactive data analysis, <laughs> right? Yeah, it yeah. is, it's, it's already interactive. It's always interactive, right? 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 Yeah, it's exactly. not that, I think people have this image that if you build a visualization with R or, or Python mm -hmm. is not interactive, mm. right? But uh, it is, right? The, yes. the act of writing the code that generates your, your, output is interactive right so right. also the interaction <laughs> even with the static visualization is, is by the way too, yeah right? exactly. like perception is action it's super interesting so there's actually three parts i just realized like there's the whole like training the model and like how to feed like the right stuff in then there's the whole like during the training, like how do you interact there and how do you optimize and then there's the like the user experience with the like the 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 system that, that uh, does something then right like how how to interact with the trained model basically is that right yeah i would say that and and there are cases also a lot of cases nowadays where the end users are also a part of the training process right mm -hmm, so in mm -hmm. your your recommender mm -hmm. systems for example they they continue to learn from user feedback and so right. I think there's opportunities there for for building better interfaces to help people mm -hmm. steer these things the way they want it to. Yeah. And there's a lot of uncertainty attached to machine learning and all these automatic, smart, intelligent systems. And I think the the whole user experience of it is super interesting. Um, can, can you describe a few of the projects, like just to make things a bit more concrete of systems or approaches you have been working on and what worked well, what didn't work well, or uh, sure. any, yeah, any types of research in that area? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think there's a couple of projects that I would say are sort of relevant to this discussion today. So one, uh, one was about a paper that we did just that came out last year at the CHI conference, where we were um, working on tools to help people understand the data that's going into these machine learning algorithms. And so, um, so, so, you know, machine learning is really a combination of both an algorithm and data. And if your data is no good, like, you know, the, the same, as the saying goes, garbage in, garbage out, right? So if your data is mm -hmm. no good, no matter how good your algorithm, your model is not going to work well. And so what we wanted to do was um, try to understand or help people understand more the data that's going into these machine learning systems. 
And so we did a, a project um, recently that came out last year at Kai um, with some other folks at, at Microsoft Research and one of our fabulous interns, Joseph Chang from Carnegie Mellon. And what we did was uh, we had crowd workers look at data sets and uh, discuss the data uh, in order to sort of surface concepts uh, key concepts in the data set so that the person who is trying to build a model can have a better idea of the sort of subconcepts of interest that's going into these data sets. Mm-hmm. So, so to like, so, so this is for really supervised machine learning where you need large label data sets. Um, and so what I mean is, you know, imagine I wanted to build a cat classifier, right? So something that can like look at an image and automatically tell me if it's a cat or not. Uh, in order to build that model, I first need to collect a bunch of data to give my machine learning algorithm. Um, and I need that data to contain images of cats and images that are not cats, right? Uh, and so it sort of seems easy enough until you really start thinking about what actually is a cat. So, you know, for example, you know, if I, you know, if I were to show you an image of a lion or a tiger, would you call that a cat? No. Yeah. Big cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you I heard a yes and I heard a no. Okay. Well, that's perfect, right? <laughs> Point proven. Yeah, Point exactly. proven. <laughs> right. And similarly with other subconcepts, like cartoon cats, like a, a, an image of Garfield or Hello Kitty, would you say that's a cat? Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of ambiguity. I mean, it's not always clear what the right answer is. And sometimes the target application will dictate the right answer. So, you know, if you're creating uh, an app that's going to monitor your, like, cat at home and sound an alarm every time it sort of gets near your shoes or something, then then in that case, you know, it's clear that lines and cartoons are not really the cats that you're looking for. But in a lot of other cases like search, where some people may consider lines and cartoons as cats, you really need your machine learning to get those sort of subconcepts right. And so what we wanted to do is instead of like using crowd workers to just label things as yes or no, we wanted them to um, surface these sort of ambiguous examples uh, so that the practitioner gathering this data can be informed about the subcategories that they may not have been aware of beforehand. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then they can do the right thing and decide how to label those things. Um, And so, you know, I use cats as a, as a good, you know, just an illustrative example, but in the practice of machine learning, you know, it's being machine learning has been being used in a lot of sensitive applications these days, right? So it's being used to do things like make financial and legal decisions. And if those models are not trained on good data, it's very risky to sort of trust what they're recommending. Mm-hmm. And you know, even in cases where um, you have you have cases these days, you may have seen like in the news that you know where machines are not able to accurately detect people of certain races and images or voice recognition systems are not being able to understand people with certain accents. Right, right. And a lot of this comes down to the data that was used to train these systems and, and not understanding if you have enough data to represent these subcategories of interests. Mm-hmm. And so, so this work was about sort of identifying these subcategories and surfacing that to a, a practitioner. And so what we're working on now, so the, the first step there was to have this crowd workflow to sort of identify these subcategories. And now what we're working on is tools to visualize and summarize that data to a practitioner. Because once you mm-hmm. have a large number of data, a, a large data set, you'll have a lot of subcategories. And so you need to efficiently 
uh, present that to a person so they can get an over- overview of what's going into the to the machine mm-hmm. um, and decide how to how to iterate. And you wouldn't feed all the crowdsource descriptions directly into the machine, but you would have a person like pre pre digest the. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. step one is like to digest and understand if you have the right data and if you need if you're deficient in certain areas. Mm-hmm. And then step two is you could use some of the crowd discussions. So we did capture what the crowds workers were saying to each other and um, the keywords that came out of that. So that could be used as features as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's so, so, so interesting. I think an interesting aspect here is that most people used to used to focus on on the algorithms because that's that's the the fun quote unquote the fun part right but yeah the fancy fancy part right but yeah, it turns yeah, right. out that that oh well, that's something that I've been discovering over the years myself I think mm-hmm. when once you do this work for real you realize that the quality of the data is is everything right and mm-hmm. and it can actually fool you in very subtle ways right right so I remember there is this kind of somewhat famous academic case where I'm pretty sure Salima, you are aware of that. Maybe maybe it's even from Microsoft. There is this paper <laughs> showing, um, I think, this um, model trained on medical data trying to predict uh, pneumonia or something like that, Hi. and uh, um, and basically what they what the model learns is that the person who has pneumonia can be sent back home without without additional treatments or something like that right <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so so i don't know if i know about that yeah. one but there was another yeah. case that um that i i do know of that rich carwan another researcher at microsoft research talks about a lot where they had trained a model um to detect i think uh, hospital readmittance. Oh yeah, it's the same. Sorry. Uh, yeah, now now remember. Same? That's yeah. the same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then they like I think they I believe they trained it on some data and then they deployed it I think or they were trying to deploy it at a children's hospital yes. where the distribution of data is very different, right? If you're training ah. a model on adults and yeah. you're deploying it to children, that's not going to behave the same way. And that's like a, another good case of where you really want to understand the data that's going in, right? Like is, is, is the data just on adults and do not have children represented, then, you know, you'll be able to know in advance that it's not going to necessarily work. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that the story I, I, I have is, I think it's even worse than that. I think it's because so the what happens in the hospital is that people who have pneumonia are actually sent to a different kind of treatment, but the model uh-huh. doesn't know that, right? And because of the treatment, the special treatment that they get, they recover much faster, right? Mm. But there's no information about that in that. That was never part of. Yeah, the it's training. never part of the model, right? So what uh-huh. the model predicts is if the if the if the patient has pneumonia, it doesn't really matter because it's gonna recover or something like that. I see. Right? Mm. Okay. So okay. <laughs> it's somewhat easy to fool a model if you have the wrong if you feed it with the wrong data or partial data or biased right. data, right? Yeah. And the tricky part is you don't see it anymore. Yeah. Like once the model is trained, you don't see the bias anymore, you know, unless you know how, how the training went about and have some ideas and some intuitions there, right? Yeah. So then right. it comes so, back to understanding yourself, like what the potential like correlations and, and yeah. whatnot in the data yeah. might be. Yeah. yeah, so we actually did some work also on on helping people sort of debug and see these problems. Right. So, so some work we did on on the system called model tracker i can talk about a bit um where it's uh 
So, 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 you know, I was talking about the data going into these systems, but we also want to understand how these systems are behaved after training. And so we uh, worked a lot on the system we call Miles Tracker. Again, this is in collaboration with a bunch of folks at MSR um, and also uh, an intern, Dong Hao Ren from UC Santa Barbara. And the goal there was, um, or the problem that we were dealing with is that uh, a lot of times when you're using machine learning tools or libraries to train a model, um, you will, the system, those libraries will show you some sort of summary statistic or number that summarizes how well your model is doing, mm. right? So if, you know, I'm building a cat classifier, your the system will say something like your model is 86% accurate, right? But what does that even really mean, right? What I really need to know was like where my model is breaking down and like, what's, what is it getting right? And what is it getting wrong? Mm. So, you know, if I'm building that cat classifier, if I can see that the system is getting all the cat cartoon cats wrong, and I really need that to be correct, a summary statistic is not enough to tell me that. So, so what we did in this work is we, um, wanted to create a visualization to help people, um, not only see the performance of their model, but also to, to be able to directly look at their errors. And, and typically what people have to do with traditional tools is they, they look at these summary statistics, see that it's not performing well, and then if they want to look at errors, they have to go to a separate tool. Um, they have to pull up their data in a separate tool and mm -hmm. sort of locate or search for the errors. And then only when they see that can they start to sort of gain some insights into what the problems are. And Previous work has shown that when you have the separation between your tools um, that you're using to train these things, it it causes a lot of overhead and it results in practitioners um, sort of take instead of taking an informed approach to model building, they'll often take a trial and error approach, <laughs> meaning they'll like like really literally like so mm. tweak algorithm parameters just to try to see to make the summary statistic go up. Right. right. So instead of like looking at their data to try to see what's happening, they'll just change a few things and see if they can make it better. And so what we wanted to do was create create something that can show you how well your model is doing, but also let you like directly access your errors. And we did this through a visualization that um, what what sometimes I believe called a unit visualization, where each item in your data is represented by a visible marking. Mm -hmm. in the display and we sort of we manip manipulate the distribution of these items to indicate the performance um, but the presence of the items themselves make them easy to access so these items are clickable so you can actually mm -hmm. like po poke at errors and then pull them up directly and use that to sort of inspect and and gain insight into what's going on and so we use that to sort of reduce the context switching and help practitioners like take a more informed approach and, you know, see beforehand before they deploy where, where their models are breaking down so that they can iterate more effectively. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to basically allow humans to develop an intuition in which areas the model does well or in on which types of examples it does well and, and on which not so much. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. because like like I said before, you have like often subcategories that you really need to understand and make sure that your model is getting right. And so you want something that allows you to sort of not just see that overall performance, but how we want to see how well you're doing on those specific cases. Mm -hmm. So you make sure in advance that for really like critical um, categories, your model is working the way you yeah. want it to. Yeah. That's that's a, another great point. Like these summary stati statistics, they usually work across the whole data set mm -hmm. and then you take like an average or something. But right. usually you're interested in like 
a specific part of it. So I'm working on a project uh, about predicting train passenger loads, like how full trains will be. Yeah. And there the model was always optimized to be good on all trains. Okay. But then from a user point of view, it's much more important to understand or to be precise on the fullest trains, yeah. like the average full train or like the empty trains, nobody cares, but the full ones are the actual challenge, right? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, so the, the whole training should be optimized to be good at these uh, on this end of the data. But that's something you just realize right. <laughs> a while into it, right? Yeah, yeah that's interesting. And I, so I think being aware of that, that your system might be not performing well on that category, like of trains, for example, once you know that as a practitioner, then you can decide how do you make that system better, right? Maybe you mm -hmm. need more data for that subcategory, or maybe you need to add features in order to help the system distinguish between these yeah. types of trains or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but without actually looking at the data and knowing that this, these are, this is where it's getting wrong, it's hard to come up with those um, uh, insights. Right, right. So one related thing I wanted to ask you is about uh, I guess you've been testing your your solutions with actual people who, whose whose daily job is to build machine learning models. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what is their reaction? Because my my sense is that uh, in a way everyone has his own uh, um, workflow, right? And it's always hard mm -hmm. to work, to break people's workflow and and way of working, right? So they would do it only when they see yeah. not just a little improvement, but a big improvement in their workflow. Everyone works like that, right? If you ask me to change the set of applications that I have in my computer and suddenly do things differently, you really have to be mm -hmm. a really strong, convincing case, right? <laughs> so, yes. so what's your what, what's your experience with that? <laughs> yeah, so so I think what what makes this problem even worse is that there's so many different tools yeah. for every step of the process. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Every, every like for data collection, you have different tools and you have for for processing your data and futurizing. And then that's a different library or tool than the thing used for training. And that, that's different than the one for debugging. <laughs> and that overhead of just having every like different tool just cause is it causes so many problems. So, you know, like I said before, all machine learning is iterative, right? You never have to go through this just once. And so if you go through this process, going through transforming your data in and out of every tool, like to get through this end to end process, and then you get to the end and you see an error. Now to fix that, you often have to go back through multiple different tools and tweak something like three tools before and then feed it back <laughs> yeah. through the other tools to just see the result. And that's like that overhead is so, so problematic. Right. Mm. Um, so so in that sense, like it can be hard to introduce new yet another tool. <laughs> um, so so what I mean, part of what we did with like model tracker is trying to reduce the number of switching. Right. Mm. Like so instead of having two separate things, you have the same this 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 visualization can always be visible and then it, it shows you the performance, but you can also access your errors. So trying to reduce the number of like different steps and different tools practitioners have to go through. So I think that helps. Um, I think, you know, there's these things like these Jupyter notebooks, you know, that, that are, are becoming really popular now where I think you can, you know, interleave um, code mm -hmm. and visualizations and text. Yeah. I think that can, is helpful for um, trying to get through this end-to-end -end process in sort of a, 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 the same sort of framework. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think there's potential there, but, but nowadays, you know, just, yeah, there's all these different libraries and open source tools and whatnot that people come up with and they're great. But like, yeah. I think we have to think about the end to end process to make, 
this, the whole, the machine learning process for the user yeah. better who it's, has to go through mm, all of these things. It's a zoo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And then you have like also often different people. It's not just one user that's yeah. going through this end to end. Sometimes you have multiple people right, yeah. right. and then there's this handoff issue where mm. someone who does something to the data and processes it, if they don't document that well, then later on down the line, when you're trying to debug, it's hard to understand where, where the problem lies, right? Did it come from the processing? Did it come from the featuring? I think there's there's more room to create tools to, for for documentation and, and helping to communicate between multiple people who are who are going through this process. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. Yeah, like how do you see the whole like how do you see the role of visualization? I'm, I've also been thinking about like how transparent do you want these mm. algorithms to be because. On the one hand, you want to understand why the black box says yes or no. Right. <laughs> And sometimes you have to, like just legally, probably. Or, yes. Yeah, you know. Yes. Or, and on the other hand, like a lot of the most powerful machine learning algorithms are so powerful because they they're beyond our capabilities, yep. right? Mm -hmm. So how, how do you see this like <laughs> develop or uh, how, yeah. how will this be handled in the future, this whole transparency issue? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just open opportunities for visualizations and for better tools. You know, like you said, these machine learning is becoming more and more powerful, especially as you have access to larger and larger data sets and you have more complex algorithms. And so I think that introduces challenges for people, but also opportunities for visualization. But at the same time, as you're having these more powerful algorithms, we're also seeing people ask for more transparency, right? Like, so I think, I believe like GDPR, for example, is going to require that people can re request an explanation of uh, automated decisions that are mm -hmm. made about them. And the, the thing is that we still don't even know how to <laughs> do that. But you get like right? a, a like, big know. vector of numbers? No, I don't know. Like, I think, I think, like even machine learning experts, I think, you know, couldn't necessarily explain like why these things are, are behaving the way they are. I mean, right. you know, it's, it's a combination of the data that it was trained on and how it was processed through this algorithm. And so, so while, you know, people are asking for this, I think we still don't really know how to do it. And so we that means that there's a lot of open problems there that, that I think we still need to Maybe solve. Maybe we could train other models to post-rationalize another neural network. <laughs> yes, so it'd be bad. Yeah, to come up with Harm. reasons why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's an open research opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Yeah. I think yeah. there's a lot of things there. Yeah, there, there is actually a line of research on how to build what they call surrogate models it's basically a model that trains mm -hmm. trains itself based on data coming from another model but this yeah. model is more transparent than the other right so a classic oh, one right. is a, it's like the the translator like the explainer basically. yeah yeah, yeah. That's great. so there is a wow. technique called trepan that basically is how to build a decision tree out of a network mm -hmm. in a way that is as close as possible to what the network does but not too complex nice. to to observe with your eyes, right? Yeah, but so, whatever whatever nonsense you come up yeah. with, somebody's on it already. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Machine learning is so crazy. It's I, crazy. I love, yeah, there's a lot going I can't on. even fathom. Yeah, but th th then you end up into this problem where people say, 
oh, say a decision tree is interpretable, right? But then you mm-hmm. look at yeah. one and it's not. It's just, <laughs> it's just like uh, as, as soon as you go past 50 nodes or even less 20 nodes, it's like, oh, okay, what does this mean? <laughs> right. So it's only on a superficial level more more yeah intelligible so yeah i don't know the question is do we have to like understand everything yeah exactly what's Mm -hmm. yeah what's the like when do we start to trust something and why and i mean we also trust cars and and planes i mean i get on a plane i have no idea how it's (laughs) even like taking off you know like the whole like with the air that doesn't make any sense you know the airflow how that would Mm -hmm. lift the whole you know i don't know so and yeah, still I, I trust the I trust the process, I guess. <laughs> so yeah. I think but, it's very context dependent. You mm-hmm. know, in some cases in low risk applications, like when recommender systems suggesting music, you know, that's that's a very low risk, you know. But you also see these things being used in like the medical domain, for example, mm-hmm. to right. um, make recommendations to doctors. And I believe there's been some work that's shown that um, the type of explanation you provide them can be more or less convincing. So if you write, if the explanation is longer, then the doctors are more convinced that the system knows what it's talking about, <laughs> even if they disagree, even if they disagree, right? And that's dangerous, right? Oh, like, just need to present it in unreadable handwriting. They will right, buy like, it. <laughs> yeah, this must be correct. <laughs> He's a pro. <laughs> exactly. Or she, or she, of course. Right. So, so we don't always want to completely trust these things, but we need to figure out when, when we want to enable that and then how we can create tools and visualizations to help people make the right decisions, not just necessarily blindly trust these things. Well, yeah. there's so much to do in this area. It's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's fascinating, fascinating. So, um, yeah, maybe we should conclude by talking a little bit about the future. Uh, I know it's always hard to say what is going to happen in the future, but what's, <laughs> what's your view, right? So what is going to happen at the intersection of machine learning and, and humans interacting with them? Yeah. Well, you know, it's clear that I think machine learning is going to become more and more pervasive. You know, it's already in our cars and in our vacuum cleaners and phones and, you know, it's listening to us at home. And, you know, I think what, uh, although a lot of what I talked about today was about practitioners building these things, uh, everyday people are also interacting with these things and they're just going to continue to do so more and more. And I think there's a lot that um, needs to be done to help them. So, you know, recommender systems is a simple example, but those things are interactively learning user preferences. But right now, people have very little control or awareness of how, mm. what these things are learning, right? Even like I myself am opt- often like very reluctant to rate these things, like rate uh, or like these <laughs> things on things like Facebook, Netflix, or Pandora, because I don't know what it's going to learn from that. Mm. You know, and sometimes like when I've rate, rated things and then it, it, I see the machine suggesting things that are not, I'm, uh, that's not of interest, there's really no control or recourse for me to fix them. And so I think, you know, that's just a simple example, but like we have our, these bots and dialogue systems like Cortana and Alexa are becoming more powerful and able to help us with things, but we also need to have, um, tools and techniques to steer them and control them more. And so so I think there's a a big opportunity to help everyday people teach these these systems so that everyone can really leverage the power of machine learning. And I think that's going to happen more 
as we get yeah. go you, you just future. reminded me of a, of a very practical problem that they have with Netflix is that some mm -hmm. of my kids decide some time to log in with my not no, the login is the same <laughs> uh -huh. they just for some reason they start watching with my um account right mm -hmm. and <laughs> yeah. yeah this completely screws up the recommendation yeah. there's no way for me to tell and it's actually the same with youtube right so i go on youtube mm -hmm. and it's like why is YouTube suggesting me all this crazy stuff today? <laughs> yeah. And then I realize it's like, oh, okay, now I see. And there's no way to revert it as far as I can tell, hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, exactly. Even like Facebook, I, I find this too, you know, a, a lot of these tools monitor implicit signals as well. So if you like, if I accidentally dwell on like a post too long and I'm like, no, <laughs> no. You know? and, then, and, then, and it's just like, we'll learn from that. And there's, you know, there's not much I, I can do, but I think, I think people are getting used to these things. And I, I, you know, just like we teach people and teach our kids, you know, I think we can teach these machines if we, if we provide people with um, good tools to do so. And I mm. think they'll, they'll want to steer these things. Yeah. But this feedback channel is not really planned for in most platforms. Right. And mm -hmm. so there we get back to like, how, how do we actually interact? And I mean, some platforms have like somewhere hidden in the settings, a few checkboxes where you can mm. untake some interest or something, but that's it. Right. But you can't really talk back <laughs> all that well so right, yeah, i right. hope there will be more like work in this direction yeah, yeah ideally it should be alexa please disregard whatever yeah. my son watched I'm, yesterday I'm <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 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 yeah. exactly. okay well salima thanks so much that was a, a lot of fun and really informative and uh yeah i'm looking forward to see what else is coming next from from your lab from Microsoft. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Hey folks, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is now completely crowdfunded. So you can support us by going on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash data stories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have a Slack channel. Uh, where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and there is a button at the bottom of the page. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and look for the link you find at the bottom in the footer. So one last thing we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for to hear from you. So see you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.